This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman in this morning for Catherine Cruz. Where is it okay to carry a firearm in the state of Hawaii? That's a question that the legislature is wrestling with this session. The discussion is about what are called sensitive places. And one of the challenges is defining exactly what that is. HPR Sabrina Bowden's been following the issue and joins us now with an update. And Sabrina, what's the starting point of this discussion? Good morning, Bill. So if we go back to last summer, the Supreme Court came down with the Bruin decision, and that had to do with concealed carry laws and different regulations. And part of it gave local municipalities jurisdiction to define what a sensitive place is. And that's a place where firearms are or are not allowed. Um, It was suspected that when our state legislature came back, this session, lawmakers would tackle gun legislation broadly within the state. And one of those measures is Senate Bill 1230. And it was in committee yesterday, and there's about an hour of public testimony and more than 550 pages of written testimony. And it's a broader gun legislation that also tackles sensitive places. And it lists 18 different types of locations where guns would not be allowed. And on top of schools and municipal buildings, guns wouldn't be allowed in public gatherings, any restaurants, most places for recreation, and most private property. And the Honolulu Police Department sent out uh, Major Joseph Trinidad, who said that this is too encompassing. In the area of sensitive places, it is too broad and will be difficult to enforce. The bill proposes that several public and all private properties be classified as sensitive places. That, this is a concern for places with multiple businesses, such as a shopping center, where individual businesses may allow firearms on their premises. So, you know, Sabrina, part of this is what, dare I use the phrase, common sense of, you know, yeah, no guns in schools and things like mm-hmm. that. But then as it gets a bit more complicated, enforcement's an issue. But there's also this question more generally in Hawaii. There's so much where authority lies because there are certain things that reside in the, the counties in terms of decisions of this, um, of, of certain decisions. And, and there are others that are statewide guidelines and So it seems to be a bit of a tussle on this, looking for that statewide guidance. Absolutely. And one of the issues is, is that when the state doesn't have guidelines or rules, there's nothing that the counties can do unless they make their own rules. Mm. So at this time, only the county of Hawaii has passed a sensitive place law. And they did that last fall. And this law designates 10, 10 different types of places as a sensitive place. And among those are schools, hospitals, public transportation. Uh, Heather Kimball is the chair of the Hawaii County Council. She's in favor of statewide regulation. And she's combed through many of the bills offered in the state house and Senate and is finding some similar elements uh, and some parts that might be better than what the county has enacted. So in the Hawaii County Bill, there is a provision that private land and business owners must put signage against concealed carry on their property. There is the requirement that in in places of business um, that there be an affirmative consent that the carry of firearms is permitted. Um, The way that the the Hawaii County bill worked out is that um, the businesses have the right to prohibit um, either through signage that their location is not a um, a location where concealed carry is permitted. But um, since we've had a history where people have not been um, regularly carrying firearms into businesses, my preference has always been um, that we have it be an affirmative that it's that it's permitted rather than um, businesses having to um, indicate that it's prohibited. So that's that's one of the things that I like about House Bill um, 428 that I hope might get rolled into whatever final piece of legislation comes out. And so, Sabrina, is the 
state legislature continues to go back and forth about this, uh, as you mentioned, Hawaii County. Also, Honolulu City Council is, is mm-hmm. talking about this as well. Yeah, so the Honolulu City Council is also taking up a sensitive places bill, and it was offered by Mayor, Mayor Rick Blanchardi a couple months ago. And what's been interesting about this bill is that it would cover all city and county-owned areas and offers a default rule that private businesses and organizations may decide whether or not firearms are allowed on their property. Hmm. So it's a lot of uh, private business owners who get to decide. And uh, it's up for committee today, and members will be discussing possible amendments, whether that's broadening the definition of a sensitive place or dialing back. So I spoke with new council member Tyler Dos Santos Tam, and he says the council will continue tweaking its bill as state lawmakers debate a statewide bill. We at the council have a quicker timeline when it comes to putting forward bills. Uh, Theoretically, Bill 57 uh, could be ready in its final form by mid-March, whereas the legislature isn't going to be ready until the first week of May with whatever proposal they have. And so we've been watching what they've been doing. You know, there are a number of bills um, uh, of various degrees of um, strictness. And really what we want to see is we want some degree of uniformity across all four counties. But, you know, having this relationship between the city and the state, we also want to be able to put forward county-specific proposals that maybe go above and beyond that, that uniform baseline that the state establishes. Every county is different. Every county's needs are different. And so, you know, we, we on Oahu maybe want to define a sensitive place differently than what's on Hawaii Island. Um, and so, you know, we want to make sure we're allowed to make some con- contextual changes as well. Um, for each county. Tracking what's happening at the Honolulu City Council. And we're also still count, still checking in what's happening at the House. They're scheduled to listen to their first sensitive places and gun bills later this month. Interesting point on the uh, timeline mm-hmm. and uh, and if the state reaches some some decision in terms of agreement at the legislature, then of course that, that guides the rest in terms of the counties. Mm-hmm. Sabrina Bowden, thanks Sabrina. Thank you, Bill. You can find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okawa, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe. For today's Backyard Quiz, we look back to the early days of Moku Oloe, or Coconut Island, in Kaneohe Bay. Today, it's home to the University of Hawaii's Institute of Marine Biology, but it has a colorful history. It was owned by Ali'i until it was sold to the very wealthy Christian Holmes II in the 1930s. While it was originally 12 acres, Holmes had it expanded to 28 acres. He would also regularly invite two to 300 guests to parties on the island that featured orchestras and his pet chimpanzees dressed in tuxedos. His guests included famous people of the day like Bing Crosby, Amelia Earhart, and Shirley Temple. But that lifestyle came to an end at the dawn of World War II. At that time, Holmes was in a state of mental decline and would walk around his property wearing a sarong with a fencing sword, accompanied by his two chimpanzees. He died at the age of 47 from alcoholism. Our question for you in today's quiz is what was the source of Holmes's fortune? If you know, call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. (music) 
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. This Saturday, HPR presents A Nay. This in-person show is a part of HPR's Mele Hawaii concert series at our Atherton studio in Honolulu. Experience this Nahoku award-winning group up close and personal. Purchase your tickets online at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. U.S. Soccer recently announced plans to implement 12 participant safety recommendations. They came as a result of an investigation into allegations of past abusive behavior and sexual misconduct in women's professional soccer. The goal is to build a culture of participant-centered safety and trust across the sport. The changes will be carried out by U.S. Soccer's Participant Safety Task Force and its recently appointed chair, Mana Shim. She grew up on Oahu and is a Kamehameha Schools alum. She was also a professional soccer player from 2013 through 2019. And in 2021, she publicly accused her former manager of sexual misconduct and abuse. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Shim recently to talk about how she hopes to create and shape policy to eradicate abuse in the sport. For those who are not aware or may not be aware of the situation, can you talk a little bit about what prompted the investigation, the investigation that led up to these recommendations? Yeah, so back in 2021, Sinead Farley and I, a former teammate, came forward and told our story about a professional coach who was harassing us when we were playing for the Portland Thorns. And we took a number of steps to try and address the issue with the league at the NWSL, and, and none of it worked, so we ended up going public with our story in, in September. And from that, it was just, you know, kind of a domino effect. A lot of other coaches had allegations against them and U.S. Soccer and the NWSL both launched investigations to look into just generally physical and sexual abuse and, and harassment from coaches and really focused on, on the few coaches in the NWSL. And yeah, just gave a detailed investigative report on, on what those allegations were. And I know the Yates report was released in October of last year, and you were recently named the new chair of the U.S. Soccer Participant Safety Task Force. In a press release issued not long after, you state, I am committed not only that the Yates recommendations are implemented, but that we push beyond them. We need to find the root causes of our sports systemic failures and take action at every level. What do you feel contributed to the root causes of the past failures? I don't think it's a secret that this is something that's rooted in youth sports. And it was something that I experienced as a young player, and I didn't realize it until I'd gone through it as an adult, just that it was maybe not happening to me, but there was grooming around me. And certainly when I've coached in youth spaces and I've, I've seen other people's experiences, it's not just soccer, it's across all sports. But definitely, you know, looking at in Hawaii, like Ilima McFarlane and what she went through, and they're definitely related to me. And I am friends with her and I've seen or I've talked to her about her story. I think our listeners kind of have a general sense of some of the things that have gone on. Uh, we've seen similar things, like you said, with Ilima Le McFarlane and the U.S. gymnastics team. And I, I want to talk a little bit about how these new participant safety recommendations will safeguard against future abusive behavior and sexual misconduct. What are some of the first steps that you'll be taking? So the pro leagues were ahead of the youth sports and, and the task force is responsible with, you know, brainstorming and figuring out how we're going to implement these recommendations beyond just the pro league space. So 
my job is really, you know, looking past the NWSL and, and the MLS and even our national teams and seeing how we can, with our member organizations and, you know, in Hawaii, that's AYSO, that's HYSA, how we can put safety measures in place at those levels to protect young players. And one of the things we're focusing on is having safeguarding officers. Kind of the equivalent is like a, a counselor at a school, you know, someone who's who's there to support and to let them know, like, if, if you're in a situation where you need to report something or you have concerns, this is the person you go to. And it's not a perfect analogy, but it, it that's kind of what it'll look like. And we don't really have anything like that in soccer in this country. So we're trying to figure out what that will look like. And then, yeah, just another really basic thing is making sure that all of the club websites are updated so people have resources and, and a clear path forward when it comes to reporting any sort of allegation. Do the recommendations include maybe some stricter guidelines for hiring coaches and, and other people in authority positions? That that seems like that might stem a lot of these bad behaviors in the future. Yeah, we're definitely focusing on that. Hiring practices is top of mind for us. We're rolling something out that's called the Safe Soccer Program. And if you think about it, it's kind of like going from a red light approach to a green light approach as far as, you know, who's participating in the sport and their educational materials, safe sport training, background checks. Like there are a number of things that we want our coaches to have to be up to standard. And we haven't done that in the past. It's kind of been a free for all, but we are implementing that program and we're developing it as, as we speak. So those things are all in the works and we recognize there are certain states that are doing this well and others that aren't. And it's difficult to measure these things, but I think we have a pretty good plan in place. And you've played soccer professionally and, and I imagine you've played soccer for the majority of your life. Can you talk about your career and how that experience informs your new role? Everything I'm doing now is with the hope that players, girls and women in the future don't have to deal with what I went through. And I think about it all the time, especially because there are new reports and allegations every day in this sport. And it's difficult because we're still in a place where we know it's happening and we want those reports to come in so we can deal with them. But eventually, you know, moving to a place where we're not just, you know, like, trying to get those reports or dealing with those reports, but actually preventing the abuse from happening in the first place. And it starts from when we're really young. And I want young people to have a different experience. And and I want their norms to be different than what my norm was and my teammates growing up, what we experienced. Because I think, I think especially when it comes to the dynamics between coaches and players, that for me is the, the clearest issue as far as you know, how this abuse happens and starts. So addressing that power dynamic and making sure there are protections in place for players and coaches alike, because it's it's difficult when coaches don't have, you know, clear boundaries drawn up and they don't have the the tools and and skills to deal with difficult situations. So it, it's really doing our part to make sure everyone has the resources they need to make soccer a safer place. This decision to stand up and bring attention to some of the terrible things happening to women in soccer was something that required a lot of courage. And you you could have very easily been scared off by the possibility of backlash for shining a light on what you knew was happening outside of the public eye. How did you find the courage to speak up? It's just something that I grew up with. My ohana has always been that way. And just having their support and knowing that Telling the truth is always the best thing to do. Like, I think especially in a situation like this, like it didn't matter what people's response was to my story because it was my story. And I know I, I knew and I still know that it's my my true experience. And I felt like, you know, any potential benefit, if it was just one person who it positively affected and resonated with and made them feel like they they were empowered to get out of a situation or to seek help. Like to me, that was worth it. So yeah, just having unwavering support from my family and then knowing that 
whatever benefit could come out of it that would come out of it would outweigh any other, you know, negativity or stigma or whatever you want to call it. What's your hope for the future of girls and and women's soccer? How do you feel these recommendations and these changes will impact the future? I feel really confident in what we're doing at U.S. Soccer. And the thing we need the most is just continued attention, right? Like people investing in this and caring about this. And it's great to have a light shining on this for a moment. But what's most important is that we continue to shine that light and prioritize keeping our athletes safe over anything else. And I think just going back to my playing experience and what it was like in competitive soccer and and competitive competitive sports in Hawaii, I know that can be difficult at times just because our people and families have priorities, you know, like for my family, it was very important that I got a college scholarship so I could go to school and they invested a lot of time and energy and money into it. And it can be difficult for some people and families to see that it's the most important thing. But when they really, I think, take the time to to think about what we're trying to do here and just what the impact can be, that'll be the thing that carries this forward. Not, you know, any work that we're doing at the organization. It really is the continued effort and support from everyone coaching and playing and, and families that are involved in the sport community. Yeah. And just being super like diligent and thinking about what's best for the athletes before anything else. Thank you so much for your time, Mana. I really appreciate you talking Thank to you. me. That was U.S. Soccer's Participant Safety Task Force Chair, Mana Shim, talking with HBR's Russell Subiono about implementing changes to safeguard against abuse and sexual misconduct in soccer. Support for HPR comes from An Evening with David Sedaris. The humorist, comedian, and author is coming to the Blaisdell Concert Hall in Honolulu, Saturday, February 18th. Tickets at davidsedarishawaii.com. Today on The Daily, a powerful earthquake in Turkey has killed thousands of people. We talk to eyewitnesses on the ground and a colleague in Istanbul. I'm Michael Mabaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Public schools play a critical role in educating Hawaii's young people, but there's a movement underway to expand their roles, turning them into community schools, which can provide local services. Civil Beat reporter Cassie Ordonio has a story on that today. And Cassie, as you report, this is a movement that is already involving public schools here. That's right, Bill. And Hawaii Public Schools have been working on the concept of implementing community schools for a few years now. And these community schools serve as resource hubs for students and their families and including the surrounding communities. They offer services that range from dental and vision checkups to offering food pantries uh, to hungry families and even washing machines. So far, there are six community schools in the state and uh, House Bill 55 seeks to expand that by providing um, these competitive grants to eligible schools like Title I schools or schools that are in low-income areas, and um, it would be a two-year pilot program. And uh, community hub is an interesting concept here. It's a uh, it's a concept that has been used elsewhere in the country, as you, you say in your story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, and this concept isn't really new. Um, The community school concept um, began in the early 1990s. So far, um, community schools have been established in New York, Maryland, Minnesota, California, among others. And so far, there's been roughly 8,000 to 10,000 community schools. And as uh, what Ruben Jacobson has said in my story, that it used to be these boutique community schools where you could only see a handful in one place. And now the movement has expanded. Now you're seeing more of these community schools across across the entire school district and you know as people know Hawaii is very unique in um, that sense uh, as a school district considering we are a one school district 
And that, that single school district nature of Hawaii is part of what the legislature is is dealing with in, in considering this and how this would mm-hmm. all be applied. Uh, and there's a, uh, there's a hearing actually later today, House Education on that. Yes, there is. It's going to be at 2 p.m. for House Bill 55. And um, there's still a blank appropriation on how much this community school effort would cost. But normally in the legislative process, um, we're going to have to wait to see if this bill passes this committee and then goes on to the House Finance Committee. Um, Representative Kyle Yamashita, who chairs that committee, will need to determine appropriation. And, of course, that that cost uh, question is always a key part of any legislation. But uh, on on this one, there are a number of options on that, too, in terms of how big to go with this program. As you say, it's something that uh, is in existence in a few schools, but uh, perhaps could grow to to more as well. Yeah, so this, uh, the Hawaii After School Alliance is advocating at the legislature to fund at least $1.575 million per year. That would fund up to five community schools that are eligible, um, and that would fund also a community school or a coordinator. And those coordinators are tasked with finding those services to bring to the community schools, and each uh, coordinator would be held at the um, appropriate schools that get the grants. You know, and you mentioned within the story about uh, talking about the the idea of not it's not a program, it's not a curriculum, but uh, a way of thinking about how to bring families, communities and partners into the school to provide resources and figuring out ways to support the students in part so that they can focus on academics and not be distracted by other life issues. That is right. Um, And. Advocates are saying it's not a program, it's more of a strategy that looks at the whole of a child. Um, and so each child has different needs and each community has different needs. But to provide community schools for children, you're also offering them resources beyond learning in the classroom. Interesting concept. And we'll get some guidance in terms of uh, perhaps potential future from the Education Committee in their hearing later today. That was reporter Cassie Ordonio with a story about how public schools are expanding their roles in some communities, a movement that may grow further here in the islands. You can find her story. Thank you, Cassie, for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. You can find Cassie's story online at civilbeat.org. For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about Christian Holmes II, one of the original owners of Moku'olo'e, or Coconut Island. Holmes was a social butterfly and an independently wealthy man who expanded the island's 12-acre size to 28 acres. He also prided himself on his pets. They ranged from rare tropical fish to birds, elephants, and chimpanzees. He also turned Coconut Island into the destination for memorable parties in the 1930s. Many celebrities of the day attended, Doris Duke, Shirley Temple, and Noel Coward among them. But eventually World War II brought the party to an end. By then, his health was in decline, and by the time he died, he had married and divorced three times. Holmes was the heir and descendant of Charles Louis Fleischmann, who made a fortune commercially producing yeast, making possible the mass production of bread. And that's the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. And Warren in Wailuku, he knew all about it. If you've got a Backyard Quiz, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Stephen Dubner, on the next Freakonomics Radio, who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Not economists. 
My view of the wolf is that they have an important ecological role, and they're also incredibly impactful on the economy. Impactful on the economy? How? I think it's a great, great question to think about. Can the big bad wolf save your life? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Mark Van Honecker, author of Imagine a City. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a pilot's view of the urban world and some of our greatest cities. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. The invasive lace bug is a sap-sucking pest that's attacking avocado crops statewide. It's also the subject of recent research by the University of Hawaii. The voracious feeders latch onto the host plant, causing premature leaf drop and reduction in fruit yield. Ultimately, weakened trees become susceptible to other diseases. Research educator Amjad Ahmad specializes in sustainable and organic agriculture. He sat down with the Conversations Lillian Song to talk about what his team is sharing with growers about controlling this pest. So avocado lace bug arrived to Hawaii or started about 2019, spreading out all over. We don't know really exactly what's the origin, but in Hawaii we import a lot, right? 85% of what we consume we import. And that could always come with potential of much, much stuff. So we don't know exactly what's the origin, but it started in 2019 and it starts showing on the leaves, starts spreading out. And then people say, oh, what is this happening on the, on the avocados? So we start more and more learning about it. The HDOA start also writing about it. We as a university, we start looking into it, what it is exactly. And then over time, we start needing to look for solutions. That's when we plan to do those trials to see what can we do, which pesticides are better than others in controlling this pest. So that's how it starts. How big of an impact did it start having? Because you do deal with farmers statewide. So it varies between varieties. Some varieties will lose all the leaves. Some of them will still have the leaves, but then you see that spots of the infection on them. In general, there are some varieties they have a bit more resistance comparing with others. We are still actually looking into it to determine exactly which varieties are better than others. Now, the issue usually with avocados is not like a, an annual crop, that like three months, four months crop. You can just tell people change varieties, right? Because it's like years still start fruiting and you don't just tell people cut it and put something in you or a variety like, for example, that has more resistance. It's not easy, right? So we need to look for solutions while we are determining and maybe over time we can start shifting into the varieties that they have better resistance. People love their trees. I mean, don't have my own tree, but definitely benefited from generous neighbors. Right now, you have already started the research and have some results from your studies. What were the major takeaways? Knowing that there are 50 species, what are the top types of avo that are more resistant to this pest? We are still actually determining that because sometimes it varies by also weather. So we are not putting exactly determination, sometimes location, the intensity of the pest. That's why we don't have really a list exactly of the varieties. But what we did from the research is we determined the pesticides that do well to control the lace bug. And with the pesticides, so it is topical application just on the leaves? Most of them, yes. But there is one of them, it's called systemic, that you can spray on the leaves or you can drench into the soil. Usually what's the issue also in Hawaii is that we have so many very large trees. To try to spray everything, it's really not easy. So that's why we recommend people to keep the trees a bit on the low when it comes to the size. That's easier when you try to spray them and stuff like this. So that's one recommendation is to deal with it. Like if you have, for example, 15, 20 feet long trees, how are you going to reach all the way there to spray all the leaves? So that gets harder with the larger leaves. So if we're talking about like a 20 foot tree, 
does it hurt the tree for you to say all of a sudden, okay, we're going to bring you down so we can start applying the pesticide? You may get a bit lower yield from what you used to before, but then the other branches actually, the ones that they are lower, they will start over time getting bigger and also they will cover that lag over time. But it's much easier for maintenance when you have the tree shorter, easier to spray, to reach the entire tree, and you make more impact on the pest. You protect the yield tree, you are gonna have yield. How about for the people who are are there organic treatments? We tested actually different chemicals, synthetic and organic. So both, we have some examples of chemicals that can be good for both sides. Now, how good they are, that varies. Some of them, for example, 50%, some of them 90% in their efficacy in controlling the lace bug. So it varies between the chemicals themselves. So it does vary, understanding that there are differences also just in environment and situation, sunlight, rain, but what should we be thinking of? So we tested about 12 chemicals and we found that Admire Pro it can be sprayed on the leaves or it can be drenched into the soil. This one is one of the best chemical to apply. The other one is called Ecotech. That's also very good. They gave us a really good percentage of control. The other one will be Mustang. Mustang, like the horse. Yes, or the cars. <laughs> and then the other one is called Sivanto Prime. Those four did the best in a control. Now you don't have to get all of them. What we are recommending is at least three products. Because of COVID, related delay in production and stuff, we're still dealing with some issues with getting some time chemicals. You go and ask for them, they are not available. What we recommend is to use at least three products, not together, but after each other in a what's called rotation. What's good about doing rotation is when you keep applying different chemicals, the pest will not have the chance to build resistance to one of them because you are hitting it after with another chemical and then another chemical. Also, each chemical you use, there is a limit. You have to follow the label because the label is the law. If the label tells you, for example, four applications in a growing season, that means four applications in a year for avocado. So what to do if you wanna apply once a month? You cannot apply that one four times, only once every three months. Having those three, four products is gonna allow you to continue without exceeding the limits of each of the products, delaying the issues of pesticide resistance building. Additionally, you are not impacting the environment by having that one concentration of a chemical again and again and again in the environment. When you spray, you wanna make sure you cover the leaves very well when you spray them. Now, some of them, while you are spraying, they will drop down into the soil, right? If you follow the label, there shouldn't be any issues of residual and environmental impact. If you follow the label, right? Because we don't want to abuse the chemical by applying more and more, and then we are also abusing the environment. So follow the label because the label is the law, and it shouldn't be any issues because that's usually been studied to make sure that everything is okay. How about neem oil? It's not effective. At all? Yeah. In fact, some people are using insecticidal soap. It's doing much better than neem oil. Really? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, Amjad, this workshop that happened on the 30th, online, available as a link, and I can listen back. For the people who attended, what sort of questions were you getting? Because these are your everyday farmers. These are the people who are boots on the ground, who are really experiencing the effects of the lace bug pest. So my colleague Jensen Ueda did this pesticide trials. He is also an extension agent here on, on Oahu. I was able to secure the funds. He did the trials. And then we also hired a student help to collect the leaves and count the number of bugs that they are being killed over time. People are looking for alternatives to pesticides, which I understand. People really try to avoid chemicals sometimes. Additionally, because Hawaii, we have the ag within a neighborhood. So people are trying to be safe for everybody. It's totally understandable. We are looking for alternatives like natural enemies, maybe some agronomical practices like tree trimming, something like that. 
people are looking for alternatives, but we don't have. For example, for natural enemies, we know a few of them, like ladybugs, that's one of them, but not highly effective, maybe like 20%. So it's not really highly effective. The worst of the chemicals we tested was about 50%. So imagine the difference not very effective in controlling the lace, but maybe something will come up over time. It's still technically, it's considered a new pest. Don't forget, although it started in 2019, immediately COVID happened. So everything was delayed till late 2020, early 2021. That's when we started actually working on it just because of the lockdowns and the issues related with COVID. So we are still looking for other options and alternatives of practices we didn't really find something yet. We are in collaboration with the Sustainable Pest Management Program led by Dr. Kunuhuwang within the university as well, looking for alternatives and stuff like this. Are there other areas in the world that are also affected by the lace bug and how are they hitting it? Absolutely, mostly chemicals because if you think about California without actually controlling it, they are going to lose hundreds, maybe even thousands of acres, right? So yeah, mostly right now is chemicals. In fact, the work on the natural enemies started in California, but they didn't find anything that's very effective. And we are still also looking for something. Hopefully something will come up over time. I just want to encourage people to, we understand people don't want to use chemicals, but don't think about chemicals as something bad. Because between using chemicals wisely, using by the label, and between losing the entire production, what would you choose, right? Another one also what we found that over time, if you keep that lace bug, especially for the varieties that they are highly susceptible, the tree is going to get weakened because it loses all the leaves. And then over time, it's going to get weaker and then gets infected with so many other diseases, not just the lace bug. And then you're going to lose the trees. So having something at least to deal with, go by the label, don't overdose. And this way you are protecting the trees, keeping it healthy, and keep looking into hopefully something new will come up to do better over time. That was HBR's Lillian Song talking with community educator Amjad Ahmad. We'll share the link to the Basics of Integrated Pest Management virtual workshop where you can learn more about avocado lace bug control strategies. You can find that later today on the conversation page of our website. Nothing says welcome to Hawaii like the Department of Agriculture's declaration form. After nearly seven decades of paper forms, a new pilot program will roll out a digital agricultural survey for travelers on selected airlines this summer. The program comes after concerns about cost and compliance. On cost, the state pays about $400,000 a year to print and process those paper ag forms. As for compliance, many people simply don't fill out the forms. Jonathan Ho is the Inspection and Compliance Chief for the Plant Quarantine Division. He's the one who tracks you down if you say you have a snake in your suitcase. Ho says only about 50 to 75% of the ag forms get filled out on any given flight. HBR Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Ho and with Helmuth Rog, administrator for the Plant Industry Division, about how the digital ag forms might help their team be more effective. Here's Rog. I worked in the Galapagos Islands. I worked for the Charles Darwin Foundation there, and we had a very similar system. We didn't have a form to fill out, but we have control at leaving the continental Ecuador and arriving on the islands, checking people's luggage. We don't do that here in Hawaii. Because it's, we're talking about 10 million people coming here. It's really difficult. They're coming from all over the place, really complicated. So we have that form, but there's not really a control. Does everybody actually fill out the form and does the airline actually collect all the forms? So we wouldn't know because we don't know. There are 250 people on board and we only get 50 forms. So that there's a problem. So electronically might be a better way to do that for that reason you know when you have your id um, your app and you try to get your boarding pass maybe there's a way to incorporate that that you have to go through that form 
a very reduced form, fill it out. So you get your boarding pass. That would probably make it easy for us because we then get, can get all that information and our inspectors have it on their tablet, on their iPad, whatnot, and get the information quickly and can quickly sort out, you know, who is, who needs attention, who needs, who brought somebody, claimed something, and we can figure that out very quickly rather than waiting for the form, the hard copy, going through the form manually, visually, going down to the baggage claim, trying to find people. It's an old system in a way, and the idea to do that electronically, not only saving trees, but to make it more efficient and hopefully reducing some of the risk. I want to talk about your experience in the Galapagos and the system that they have in terms of actually checking people's luggage when they come in. Mm -hmm. Would that be an ideal system? And if it would be an ideal system, how much manpower would you folks need in order to do that effectively? So I did set up the system in the Galapagos back then when I worked there for the Josari Foundation. So we had x-ray machines leaving continental Ecuador. So Quito and Guayaquil were the ports where people left for the Galapagos. So this is where I'm very narrowed down. We only had 150, now there's maybe 250,000 tourists a year versus, what is it, 6, 8, 10 million coming to Hawaii from different States, it would be very complicated to do that same system. Arriving in the Galapagos, you come to two airports in the Galapagos. Everybody arriving had their check-in luggage screened x-rayed on origin airport in Ecuador mainland. And then your carry-on was also screened through the x-ray machine at arrival in the Galapagos, two airports that people came in. So we also had a list of stuff that you can and cannot bring into the Galapagos. And one of the biggest concern were the residents in the Galapagos, because they know what they can get in the Galapagos. So they brought their mangoes, their fighting cock, rooster, you know, um, from the mainland and tried to smuggle it in. Um, the regular tourists that came to, to, to look at the Galapagos because of the uniqueness of the, uh, the Galapagos Island, they were always in compliance with that and understood all that. The risk of people bringing seeds on sneakers or bringing in an apple to the Galapagos. So this is a little more complicated here in, in, in Hawaii because we had so many airports where people would leave from where we would have to have x-ray machines and people check their luggage. Um, and the, the sheer volume of millions of people coming, it would totally overwhelm not only us, but also the, the you know, in this case, maybe the federal system, if we would get assistance from the federal government, USDA and APHIS. So it's a little more complicated and very likely not feasible, applicable to do what we did in the Galapagos Islands. Okay. And you you mentioned that, one, Hawaii has an issue with compliance. That is anecdotal because there isn't a system in place to confirm if people are filling out the ad forms. And from your experience working in the Galapagos, the folks who tried to game the system or who were less likely to comply were residents. Yes. Have you seen that, that same pattern here? Well, as I said, uh, there is not any statistics here that I can bring, but I flew back several times from the mainland and I watched several people. They actually received the form and this person talked into the neighbor said, oh, I don't fill this out. I live on the big island or whatever. So they were clearly residents and they did not fill out the form. I'm not sure if we have any statistics, Jonathan. Do we have anything? I wouldn't say it's quantitative, but they have the back of the form and people fill it out. And, you know, the uh, 
the amount of responses they get from visitors far surpasses residents. So, you know, you could say that it's likely that the residents are not filling out the form as opposed to re- as opposed to visitors. But that being said, yeah, we don't have anything, anything that, you know, hard and fast in terms of making that determination. As Helmut said, the ability to have a digital form could potentially eliminate that, that uncertainty. Ensuring 100% compliance is impossible, but generally speaking, about 50 to 75% is what you normally will see. Why don't we have more specific data on how many people are filling out the ad forms and why isn't 100% compliance a reasonable expectation? So first is the statute itself. One adult family member can fill out for everyone. So to make the determination as to who's in what family when you have, you know, 300 people, somewhat difficult. Secondly, there's no requirement that everybody actually comes down to the baggage claim. If you don't have baggage, you don't have to come down to the baggage claim. So we'll never see you. Um, that's another challenge. And, and the most important thing is the penalty. So the penalty is criminal. So if you are to question people, whether they filled it out or not, because it's a criminal penalty, technically you need to Mirandize them. And, and if they lie, you know, if they didn't fill out the form, it's technically a criminal penalty. It really impedes the ability to, to enforce, unfortunately. I mean, obviously we all want to do more, but again, um, the, this form is, as you know, fairly unique, at least within the United States. In a way it does, um, ask for the, you know, for the understanding and the collaboration of people to cooperate with us. We need a lot of outreach here in this term and explain why we do this and why we need to your collaboration. People that come to the Hawaii, to the islands, they understand the uniqueness, the endemism that we have, you know, the resources that we want to protect. As as Jonathan said, this is not a new thing that's been going on for years, um, you know, to figure out a better way a more efficient way and less paperwork. Yes, we're printing a lot of forms. Uh, it costs a lot of money and it costs a lot of tree slides. Helmuth Rog, Administrator for the State's Plant Industry Division, and Jonathan Ho, Inspection and Compliance Chief for the Plant Quarantine Division, speaking with HBR Savannah Harriman Pote about how a new digital pilot program may encourage more people to fill out their ag declaration forms when they arrive in our islands. That wraps it up for today. Catherine's back tomorrow, and among her scheduled guests is Honolulu Mayor Rick Blanjardi. Got a question for him? You can let us know on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also use that to share comments or ask other questions, or you can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Bill Dorman. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Aloha. Aloha.